All right, let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. Now we covered the first two verses last week. And we're going to cover verses 3 and 4 today. But I want to read, so we get our context, I want to read the first four verses all together. And then we'll pick up where we left off in verse 3. Beginning in verse 1, The elders who are among you I exhort. And so as we learned last week, this particular passage here at the beginning of chapter 5, Peter is specifically addressing the elders, the overseers, the shepherds of the flock. And to exhort is to encourage, to admonish, to stir up. And so it's not a negative thing by any means. Exhortation, and that is one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I do believe, again, this is one of the many reasons why it's really important and really valuable to get involved in a local church body. Because God has placed certain individuals within the body of Christ that have this gift of exhortation. There are others who seem to have the gift of bummer. (laughs) Get bummed out. But we all need to be encouraged. We all need to be exhorted, uplifted, challenged, stimulated. But if we don't hang out with other believers, then we're not going to get the benefit of those spiritual gifts and since the Bible clearly states that God has given gifts, spiritual gifts, to every member of the body of Christ, that means that whatever gifts God has given you won't be exercised unless you are interacting, relating, communing with other believers. God has placed us in the world to be a light, but unless we are fellowshipping regularly with other believers... The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So we need that exhortation. Peter's exhorting the elders. And so he says, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. This is a great passage. If you missed last week, if you go over to the cafe, you can purchase a CD or DVD copy. I think these first two verses are just chock full of good things. We do have on our website, calvarychapeleast.com, you click on media and you'll be able to access many, many, many of the Sunday teachings. YouTube version is up. We also have a YouTube channel, Facebook. So there are many opportunities to, to pick up messages that you may have missed. So what is he? Um, he says, I'm a fellow elder, a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And also a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples of the flock, or to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Let's pray. Father, as we move on to these next two verses, we pray that your Holy Spirit would once again quicken to our hearts and minds the understanding of this passage, what you're trying to say to, not just to the elders, but to all of us, Lord. 
We know that all Scripture is God-breathed and it is beneficial, it is profitable for correction, for, re- for rebuking, for training in righteousness. So Lord, I ask you to just speak to our hearts today and to our minds because you have given us our minds. You've given us the ability to think, to reason, to process information. Just impart your word deep within our hearts today, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read verse 2 again, just as we roll into verse 3. Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, not because somebody has pressured you into doing it, or for some other motivation, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Then he goes on, and he echoes really the words of Jesus, which we will read in just a moment. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So, first of all, Peter's telling them, don't become a leader or serve in a leadership position in the church for the sake of monetary or material gain. Now, Paul did uh, write that uh, do not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and that those who... uh, teach the word or worthy of double honor. The New Testament does not discourage or prohibit people from being in what we call full-time ministry where they're actually compensated for that. But that should not be the primary goal or reason for entering into a leadership position in the church. We talked about this last week, how so many of the young guys that came up under Pastor Chuck, that's my frame of reference, my background, watching as various young men would enter into the ministry at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, and other Calvary chapels that I'm familiar with and have been involved with, that there was very little discussion of monetary issues. We just wanted so badly to serve the Lord and be in ministry, we just took whatever we could get whatever was offered. And uh, we see a much different scene today on the landscape with uh, ministry. I talked about that last week. Secondly, Peter is exhorting them, don't become a leader in the church because you have a desire and a need to control and manipulate other people. Think power trip. And we've probably all witnessed that at one time or another. People uh, in ministry who seem to be on a power trip and really like the idea of being able to control and manipulate other people, not lording it over those entrusted to you. All pastors, all leaders in the church are under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd, as we see Peter referring to him here in this passage. And so... God entrusts to human individuals that he's called. Ephesians chapter 4, and he gave some as apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. So we're all God's kids, and he has entrusted to some the responsibility for caring for his kids, overseeing the body of Christ, but it's to be done in a very humble, 
servant-like manner. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. So if we model that kind of power trip, manipulation, control, then we will produce other men and women like that. And again, you see that in certain ministries, unfortunately. Mark ten forty two through 45, Jesus called them, the disciples, to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. It goes against our natural way of thinking, doesn't it? That's why Jesus contrasts it with the leadership style of the Gentiles, which in the New Testament, or in the Old Testament for that matter, the term Gentile is another word for a pagan. A non-believer. And the idea that somebody in a position of authority, of leadership, would actually be the slave of all, goes totally against the grain of that pagan mentality. Verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And of course, one of the most graphic examples of that in the scriptures is in the Gospel of John where Jesus takes out off his outer garments, basically strips down to his underwear. I mean, it was different than the underwear that we wear. But just that basic undergarment gets down on his hands and knees and washes the disciples' feet. Peter, of course, not surprisingly, is the one who objects. Oh, no, Lord. That was Peter's favorite expression before he got humbled and then filled with the Holy Spirit. No, Lord. See, the word Lord means what? Master. That's what Lord means, master. My Lord, my master. So the word no and Lord don't really connect. They don't go together. If he's your Lord, if he's your master, you don't ever tell him no. Yet Peter did. And Jesus said, well, unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me. Wow. So Peter says, okay, wash me all over then. No, no, you don't need a whole bath, Peter. Again, it's symbolic for one thing. And it's the idea that as believers, as we walk through life in this world, just like in Jesus' day, they wore the open sandals and they walked the dirt roads. Can you imagine what happened to their feet? Got pretty dirty. And so it was a common practice, but it was usually a practice done by the lowliest of servants in the household when you would come in from out walking through the dirt the lowliest of servants in the household would take off your sandals and wash your feet. So Jesus was lowering himself to the lowest possible level to set an example to the disciples. 
And now we see a more mature Peter writing here with great humility. I, Peter, a fellow elder. And he's encouraging these other elders, these shepherds of the flock, to be the servant of all, to be the slave of all. In contrast with the pagan rulers, pagan leaders, pagans in places of authority who would lord it over those below them. You've probably heard the expression. I don't know if you know where it came from. I'll tell you. A guy named John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton. First Baron Acton. Lived from January 10th, 1834 to June, June 19th, 1902. He was an English Catholic historian, politician, and writer. He's probably best known for this remark that he made in a letter to an Anglican bishop. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. He says great men are almost always bad men. And the only one who can cause and enable men to be the exception to this rule is Jesus Christ. That is the human nature, the fallen nature, the sin nature. That is the tendency that when somebody comes to a position of power, they begin to be corrupted by it. And when they get to that place of absolute power, they are absolutely corrupted. The only one who can prevent that from happening is Jesus Christ when our lives are fully committed and submitted to Him. But we've seen it even within the body of Christ. We've seen those who have risen to great heights, great places of recognition, positions of power and influence, and we've seen them stumble and fall. A couple of notable exceptions, recent exceptions that come to mind One would be Billy Graham, who just recently passed away. He was a man who remained throughout his life and ministry above reproach. But that's very rare, isn't it? And so absolutely, Billy Graham was a man anointed by God, empowered by the Spirit of God to impact his world for almost an entire century. He was 99, wasn't he? when he passed. Another one that comes to my mind is Pastor Chuck Smith. He went out of his way to make sure that he lived a modest lifestyle. His salary was very minimal. He was fortunate that his family had made some investments that uh, provided income for him later in his life. Chuck was the overseer prior to his death of about 1,600 churches worldwide. Literally impacted the lives of millions of people, but most people never even heard of the guy. When you go outside of California, which is where the Calvary Chapel movement began, and go to other parts of the country, other parts of the world, and you mention Chuck Smith, they say, Who? Why is that? Because he deliberately went out of his way to keep a low profile. 
And so it is possible. And this is the exhortation Peter's putting forth. But unfortunately, we see so many times in the church today that men like Billy Graham, like Chuck Smith, they're the exception rather than the rule. But we should be striving for the higher goal in Christ to be like Peter is talking about here. James 3.1, he says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. What is he talking about? Well, first of all, obviously, uh, the more visible you are, the more subject you are to judgment by other people. By fellow human beings. A stricter judgment. Although, there doesn't seem to be a, a lot of discretion in the body of Christ today, I have to say. And in fact, those who probably are most worthy of scrutiny are the least likely to receive it. But Acts 17.11 Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians. What made the Bereans of more noble character? I wonder if the Thessalonians read the book of Acts. <laughs> I wonder if they were offended by this. The Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So they'd been instructed by Paul. They received the message, but these were the first Reaganites. Trust, but verify. How many of you remember that? Ronald Reagan said, trust, but verify. And so the Bereans were the first Reaganites. Because they said, yeah, Paul, we trust you, but we're going to verify Make sure what you're telling us is correct. And so they searched the Scriptures, which at that point would have been the Old Testament. New Testament hadn't been completed yet. But they were able to go back to the Old Testament Scriptures and verify that Paul's teachings were accurate. How many Bereans do we have in the church today? And when I say the church, you know I'm talking about the, the big tent, right? I'm not talking about this group. I have a lot of confidence in you guys. But the church in general, the church at large, how many Bereans do we have that trust but verify who say, boy, that, that was a great message, Pastor, but then you go home and you go, okay, let me double check this. And there is a tendency among many preachers to do what we call proof texting. And that means they come up with a theory of their own and they look for scriptures that will support that theory. You follow what I'm saying? Proof texting. And that's predominant, especially where they don't go through the scriptures verse by verse like we're doing. I'm not saying that's the only way to do it. It's the way that I prefer to do it. It's the way I was taught to do it. And you avoid a lot of pitfalls like taking things out of context when you teach through the scriptures. So James says, My brethren, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. And yet there are many who view the ministry as being very glamorous. If any of you feel that way, come and hang out with me for a few days. 
I'll show you all the glamour. But there's a stricter judgment, first of all, from other people. Then there is a stricter judgment, more importantly, by God Himself. Because, again, people will have their opinions. People will make their judgments. But unless your opinions and your judgments are based upon this, they don't mean a whole lot. You see? Everybody has their feelings and their emotions and their opinions. But what counts is the truth of God's Word. So ultimately, even though a shepherd, an elder, a leader, a home Bible study leader, whatever the the case might be, certainly it's valid to consider the judgment of those around you. We should be open to that to correction. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. But more importantly, what does God think? And so there a stricter judgment from people, a stricter judgment from God. It could be a judgment that leads to disqualification from ministry. God may say, well, I'm going to have to put you on the shelf for a while. Hopefully not permanently. And a lot of that depends upon you and me, how we respond to God's correction. 1 Corinthians 9.27, Paul says, I discipline my body, bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So Paul recognized the importance of self-discipline, of living a godly life. Otherwise, his teaching, his ministry, his leadership could have been invalidated. Titus 1.16. And here Paul is writing to Titus about false teachers. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. The Bible has much to say about forgiveness, restoration. We know the horrendous things that King David was guilty of and yet he repented, he humbled himself before God and his throne was restored to him. There are some out there, certain groups, certain denominations or what have you that uh, consider some sins irredeemable in terms of ministry that uh, there are certain things that could disqualify someone permanently and then there's another camp and I tend to be in this other camp the God is a God of grace, mercy, forgiveness new beginnings, second chances fresh starts but we do need to recognize that there are times when certain things will happen in someone's life that will, at least for a season, and again, this is God's judgment. Unfortunately, many times we fall under the judgment of men, and God tends to be a lot more gracious and merciful than men. Okay, thou. We mentioned the judgment leading to disqualification from ministry. 
Secondly, again, this is God, not man. You, you will incur a stricter judgment from men, but also from God. From God, a future judgment of works for potential reward. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul is teaching here, some will plant, some will water, some will nurture. We all have a part to play. But the foundation is Jesus. If we don't have a firm foundation to build upon, then our house will crumble. So he says, now if anyone builds on this foundation, there are a lot of people out there in the world who are what we call humanitarians, philanthropists. And oftentimes these humanitarians and philanthropists have a lot of earthly resources which enables them to be a humanitarian or a philanthropist. Although you could be poor, I suppose, and still be a humanitarian or a philanthropist. The point is, they do lots of great things. The sad part, there's no real benefit. Now, the person that they're helping, sure, they got a meal. That's great. They got some clothes. That's great. Uh, Habitat for humanity. Maybe they got a place to live. These are all good things. But they're all temporary. And unless you're building on the foundation of Jesus Christ, these things have no eternal value, meaning, or purpose. If anyone builds on this foundation, and again, these materials that he speaks of, these are metaphorical or allegorical. They're spiritual. Gold, silver, precious stones. Not literally but in God's sight using precious materials. Again, things with lasting, meaningful value and purpose where Jesus Christ is the foundation and the things that we do, the good deeds that we do in this life are motivated out of our love for God and God's love for the human race. So you have gold, silver, precious stones. These are all things that last. In this world, gold, silver, precious stones can last for millennia upon millennia. But since they are metaphorical or allegorical, he's talking about things that have eternal meaning, value, and purpose. But then notice the next three. Wood, hay, and straw. Do those last? They don't. So what he's saying is that even though as believers we may do good things in this life, if we're not doing the right things for the right reasons, they still have no eternal value, meaning, or purpose. And then he says each one's work will become clear for the day, big D. The judgment day will declare it. Because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. Can you burn gold? No. You can, you can liquefy it, right? 
still gold. And as soon as it cools down, it's solid again. You can't burn gold, you can't burn silver, you can't burn precious stones, but you can sure as heck burn wood, hay, and straw, can't you? And so when God, on judgment day, sets fire to all of our works, if anyone's work which he has built on it, on that foundation of Jesus Christ, endures, he will receive a reward. And the Bible talks about crowns. We'll look at a crown here in a moment. Other types of rewards that we can't fully understand or comprehend, but we will understand when we see him face to face. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, not of salvation, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And I always envision this guy or this gal getting into heaven and there's like a singe spot on the back of their robe, you know, where they just, woo! <laughs> that was a close call. That kind of thing. So a future judgment of works. Now this applies not only to people who may be elders, shepherds, leaders. really applies to the whole body of Christ. Now there is one more judgment, and this is probably the worst of all. This is an eternal judgment for false shepherds. Matthew 7.15 Jesus says, Beware of false prophets, which is essentially the same as a false teacher, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. So what is Jesus telling us? What is he warning us about? People who might come into the church, into the flock, the body of Christ, they look like a sheep, but they're actually ravenous wolves. In other words, Jesus, we saw last week, is the door. He's also the good shepherd. He's also the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, isn't he? So these false prophets, false teachers who will come into the church, they look like everybody else. They talk like everybody else. In fact, they may be more fluent in Christianese than you are. You know what I mean by Christianese? God bless you, brother. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. On and on it goes. Right? But Jesus says inwardly, they are ravenous wolves. Because a good shepherd protects the sheep, nurtures the sheep, provides for the sheep. What does the wolf do? He eats the sheep. He devours them. Second Peter 2, 1 through 3. There were also false prophets among the people, speaking of times past, times of the Old Testament. Peter says there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. He doesn't say there might be, does he? He says there will be. Now do you think that he was only talking about the first century? This is a warning that stands as long as we continue on in this age, in this era, the New Testament era, the time of the Gentiles, when the gospel has gone out all over the world and the majority of people in the body of Christ are Gentiles, but now we're coming to the end of that time God is beginning to draw the Jewish people to himself again. 
more and more are coming to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, their Mashiach. But Peter says there will be false teachers among you. Again, I would remind you, what does that mean? We need to trust, but verify. You see? Because many people are naive, they're gullible, and, and the better looking someone is, the better their presentation, the more eloquent they are, the more people are ready just to believe them without even checking. There's an assumption. Again, this is the flesh. This is human nature. This is not the godly nature of those who are filled with the Spirit of God. It's human nature, and yet many times those in the church. If you don't look right, if you don't sound right, they disregard you and write you off. But if you look good and smell good and talk good, they'll believe anything you tell them. Does that sound far-fetched? No, it doesn't. It's truth. It's absolute truth. Who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Yeah, no wolf ever comes into the church and says, Hey guys, I'm a wolf. You want to see my canines? I'm going to bring in some destructive heresies. I'm going to bring in some false teaching. Are you ready? They don't do that. It's secretive. It's sneaky. It's deceptive. Even denying the Lord who bought them, and we see this more and more where churches are going to a gender-neutral God, gender-neutral Bible translations, some not mentioning the name of Jesus because we don't want to offend anyone. Even denying the Lord who bought them and bring on themselves swift destruction. And you're probably thinking, well then how come I haven't seen any of these guys incinerated lately? Swift destruction to God is different than swift destruction to you and I because God does not live within the realm of time and space. He is eternal. To you and I, swift destruction would be right now. Toast. God's a little different. And many will follow their destructive ways because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. Wow. Have you guys noticed the way of truth getting blasphemed lately? Have you noticed that the true believers who really stand up for the truth, who speak the truth in the public arena, are crucified for it? Loss of income, loss of business, loss of job, loss of... It's happening. It may not have happened to you yet, and it may not have happened to me yet, but it is happening, and it is going to happen more and more as we get closer to the rapture of the church. I mean, it was a good old... Um, <clears throat> gosh, what's her name? I blanked her out. From The View. Rosie O'Donnell. See how important she is to me? I forgot her name. But she said several years ago, when she was still on The View, I believe. By the way, I don't ever watch that show. I do see clips here and there from other websites. I do not watch that show. She said that 
evangelical Christians were worse than Islamic terrorists. She's not the only one to make statements like that, by the way. There are many who have made comments like that, that we are a bigger threat to America than the Islamic jihadists. The way of truth will be blasphemed. It was Joy Behar who recently basically said that Mike Pence was insane because not only does he talk to Jesus, but Jesus talks to him. Of course, it's okay when God talks to Oprah. She said she wouldn't run for president unless God told her to. But wouldn't that make her insane also? Okay, 3 of Second Peter 2. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. Covetousness, they want things. They want your things. They want your resources, your money. You send in your check today and I will pray for you. Stories about these guys and how they find the, uh, the many prayer requests in the dumpster behind their office and so forth. Send in for your prayer cloth. It's anointed. You send in 25 bucks, we'll send you that prayer cloth. You can lay it over your wife, your son, your daughter, your dog, and they'll get healed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle and their destruction does not slumber. Now to you and I it may look like they're getting away with it. But God sees everything, does He not? And He will deal with it. You will incur a stricter judgment. Finally, Second Peter 3 beginning verse 16. He, Paul, this is Peter writing about Paul writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures. So here Peter confirms that the writings of Paul are scripture. Do you see that? That's pretty cool. To their own destruction. Therefore, dear friends, since you already know this, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of of lawless men and fall from your secure position. Wow, that's some strong language. Now, as I mentioned, for reasons known only to God, although I could easily speculate, He often allows deceptive, greedy, unprincipled, power-hungry men to remain in leadership positions. In fact, quite often, they are the ones who appear to be the most successful, the most influential. And for some reason, God allows them to stay there. When we talk about this swift destruction, it's referring more, I believe, to when they stand before Him. One reason I can think of right off the bat, I'm not going to try to delve deeply into this, but God allows this to happen to test the faith of those who fall under their spell. Are you truly born again? Are you truly filled with the Spirit of God? Because in 1 John, John says we have an unction or anointing from the Holy Spirit which enables us to discern truth from error. Testing, one, two. Are you picking up something? 
Are you detecting the error or are you just falling under the spell? This is a test of the emergency broadcast system. Sadly, many people are failing the test. Now, only God knows for sure. Are they born again but deceived? Or are they not born again at all? Neither one is good. But to think you're saved when you're not, that's really not good. Let's move on to verse 4. So, if elders, leaders, overseers, shepherds, if they follow here the words of Christ spoken through the Apostle Peter, then he says, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Again, what is Peter telling all the overseers, shepherds, leaders, pastors, or would-be, those maybe aspiring to some kind of leadership in the body of Christ, what is he telling you? That if you're faithful here and now, you will be rewarded when? When Christ returns. So often we get focused on the here and now. And that's where these guys we've been talking about today, these gals we've been talking about today, who are fleecing the flock, taking advantage of the body of Christ, deceiving false teachers. They want it all here and now. And a lot of them are getting it. But what they don't realize is what they're going to get after this. You see? The chief shepherd, Jesus. As we saw last week, he refers to himself in John 10, 11 and 14 as the good shepherd. Hebrews 13.20 refers to him as the great shepherd. So even though God has raised up earthly shepherds, we are not perfect. We are still flawed. We are still sinners saved by grace. But he, that's why we must always keep our eyes ultimately on him. The good shepherd, the great shepherd, the chief shepherd, because he never fails. He is perfect in all of his ways. If we get our eyes on men we will be stumbled. And if you can actually find someone to look up to that appears to be perfect, I'd go the other way. Because they aren't. They can't be. What that tells you is they're phony. They're plastic. They're trying to present themselves as perfect so that you will follow them. I'd be more afraid of that person than the one who's rough around the edges and flawed. I guess I'm talking about myself here. <laughs> I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm the same person up here that I am at home, and that probably scares you, but not as much as it scares my wife. <laughs> I have no desire to, to try to put on a front and be Mr. Perfect. Oh, gee, we're surprised to hear that. Could have fooled me. Do you get, you get my point? Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. Right? I'm not the author and finisher of your faith. I'm just his representative. Like Peter says, I'm a fellow elder. But when the chief shepherd appears, so obviously Peter had full confidence that Jesus was coming again. Right? He didn't say if. Well, if the chief shepherd appears again, no, he said when. 
Peter believed firmly in the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ. In John 14, beginning of verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Why would their hearts be troubled? Because he had already told them he was going to have to go away. You believe in God, believe also in me. Trust me. I won't steer you wrong. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'd go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Is Jesus 100% reliable? Has he ever told a lie? Peter knew that. When the chief shepherd appears, not if, but when. It's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. And again, we talk about this idea that if you're truly born again, John Wesley called it the inner witness. He preached for many years without the inner witness. Can you believe that? And one day it dawned on him. He did not have that inner witness, that inner assurance of salvation by grace through faith. And at that point, he reaffirmed his faith in God, reaffirmed his faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit came to live inside of John Wesley, and he had what he called the inner witness. And that's what we refer to as, I know that I know that I know. If you know that you know that you know, that there's one God, Yahweh, Jehovah, the great I Am, the creator of all things, and He has one and only, only one Son, Jesus Christ, Yeshua HaMashiach, who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. And the third person of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit who comes to live inside of you when you are born again. Then you will never go around saying, well, if He comes back, Gee, I sure hope he comes back. No, you'll be like Peter and you will say when he appears. You see the difference? That's a question only you can answer. Only God knows your heart. Are you a when he appears believer or an if he appears believer? It's kind of like, are you a New Mexican or a New Mexicant? Is the glass half full or half empty? Actually, in Christ, it's not half full. What did David say? My cup runneth over, baby. He didn't say baby. I threw that in. (laughs) But I think he might have. I also think David wore Western shirts. So what do you think of that? (laughs) Just kidding. Okay, Acts 1, 9, 9 through 11. When he, Jesus, had spoken these things, the final words of instruction to his disciples. While they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And if that would have happened in the 60s, the disciples would have said, out of sight, man. (laughs) And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. Who might they be? Angels. Who also said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? They're just kind of like, what just happened? The angels go, what's, what's the big deal? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. 
So we have the affirmation of Peter and the other apostles. We have the affirmation of the angels of the scriptures that Jesus, the chief shepherd, will appear again. It's not a matter of if. It's only a matter of when. And we are closer now than we've ever been. There can be absolutely no doubt that the chief shepherd will appear again very soon, I believe. And his appearing... Now, there's two parts to this. I'm going to say something and then I'm going to clarify it. His appearing will not be hidden. It'll be very visible. However, there's two parts to the second coming. Did you know that? Is God allowed to do that? Well, God, you can't do that. If there's going to be a second coming, it has to be a one-time deal. Does God have the right to make it two parts? Sure. The first part is the rapture. And it will be secretive. The Bible says, what? Like a thief in the night. The rapture will be secretive. And it only involves believers. The second coming. The return of Christ to the earth. The Bible says that He will call to us from the clouds, from heaven. The trumpet call of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. And those of us alive and remain will be caught up to meet them in the air. In the rapture, Christ never sets foot on the earth. At the second coming, He literally sets foot on the Mount of Olives, creating an earthquake. The second coming will be seen by all. Matthew 24, beginning verse 23. If, any, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand... Therefore, if they say to you, look, he's in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, another thing you have to understand here in Matthew 24, Jesus is talking to a group of Jewish disciples and he's describing the conditions on the planet Earth during the time of the tribulation leading up to the second coming of Christ. He's not discussing the rapture here. And he says it'll be like lightning coming from the east and flashing to the west. This is interesting because the Jehovah's Witnesses leaders declared that Jesus would return in 1914, which was updated from 1874. So first they said 1874. When that didn't happen, they changed it to 1914. When that didn't happen, the leaders of the Jehovah's Witnesses were forced to revise their prophecy and they declared that Jesus did return in 1914. He just did it invisibly. That's pretty convenient, isn't it? He said, if they say he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. Again, when the chief shepherd appears, he will appear as we meet him in the clouds, in the rapture, and then we will return with him at the second coming. But the point here is he says, when he does appear, when we see him face to face, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. Now there are a number of crowns mentioned in the New Testament. There's a martyr's crown for those who literally lay down their life rather than deny Christ. There are many who have already qualified for that crown. And there are other crowns as well. This crown 
is apparently awarded to the faithful shepherds in this life. This is the future eternal reward for those who are faithful as overseers in the flock of God in this life. Charles Ryrie says, Faithful church leaders who are often dishonored on earth will receive glory in heaven from Christ, the chief shepherd. Victorious athletes were awarded floral crowns which quickly faded away. So again, we can focus on the rewards that are available in this life, but those rewards don't last. It doesn't matter how much you accumulate. You remember the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus was the poor beggar who's all covered with sores. He sat at the gate of the rich man begging for alms. They both died. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom, which was the holding place for the righteous prior to ascending into heaven. The rich man went to the other side, which was very warm. Remember? Did the rich man get to take any of his wealth with him? Not a bit. Not a bit. So Jesus said, don't lay up treasures for yourselves on earth. Lay up treasures in heaven because they are eternal. They last forever. So throughout the scriptures, we see the contrast between earthly rewards, which is what most people are focused on. Sadly, even many believers. These earthly rewards are temporary. They do not last. But we see the contrast in the scriptures between earthly rewards and eternal rewards, which we will receive after this life is finished. These rewards will last forever and are the ones after which we should seek. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we can all learn from what we've studied here today. We know that there's somewhat of an emphasis or a focus on leaders in the church, elders, overseers, shepherds. Lord, but every bit of your word is applicable to every one of us in some fashion, in some way. Certainly this whole idea, Lord, of deferring the earthly rewards for the eternal ones. Lord, help us. We pray that you would help us to be more focused on eternity, less focused on the here and now. And Lord, that we would look at things from your viewpoint, from your vantage point. Life here on this earth, this life we now live in these mortal bodies. It is temporary at best. And Lord, the real goal should be spending eternity with you in paradise. Lord, using the right building materials, building upon the foundation of Jesus Christ and using the precious spiritual resources that you've given us, the gold, the silver, the precious stones. Lord, may we not waste our time and energy and even money on wood, hay, stubble, those things that will not last, those things that will be burned up. Lord, we give you permission to just continue to work in our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit. You are the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, we ask you to just keep writing that story of our lives in Christ. And Lord, may it come to a great and glorious conclusion as we one day see you face to face. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.